0: Let me ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Our reading is from Mark chapter 1. I ask you to stand as you're able to. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Mark chapter 1. Then I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and we're going to respond together. Thanks be to God. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. We have noted it several times during the service this morning, but we have come together here in order to know the Lord Jesus, to know him. And, and of course, I mean by that not just to know what, some things about him, not just to know facts about him. Not just to know doctrine or data, but to really know him. To know who he is. To know what he's like. To know what grieves him. To know what brings him joy. To know him as a friend. And to have fellowship with him in that way. To know him as a brother. To trust him as a savior. To submit to him as our Lord. And it really is, in in one sense, what this is all about in the end. Why we would gather together like this on a Sunday morning, all sitting in these these nice pews together. That we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and really know him. The Apostle Paul expresses his heart's desire about this in Philippians chapter 3. It's a well-known text to many of you. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In the context, you know, Paul has declared everything he has known up to that point to be worthless, less than worthless in comparison to knowing Christ. And even having fellowship with him in his suffering. Well, that's our purpose here every morning, and it is our purpose this morning. And having studied Paul's letter to the Galatians together in some detail over the last year and a half, we turn our attention to the Gospels this morning in order that we might know Christ. In order that we might know the good news of who he is and what he has done and what he is doing even now. And specifically, we turn our attention to the Gospel of Mark, this text that I just read to you. And I have been looking forward to this. Mark begins his Gospel by saying, plainly, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God what Mark is going to express to us, what he has recorded here, what the Holy Spirit has given to him to put on these pages and has preserved for the years for us is the, the good news about our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the good news of, of God who came to be our Savior and our King in the flesh. It is the good news that the Lord Jesus himself preached while he walked on the earth, and it is the good news of which he himself is the content. He is the good news that he came and walked on the earth and died on the cross for sinners. Now, some of you all know a little bit about the gospel of Mark. You maybe have heard sermons preached from various portions of it before, or the whole thing. You've uh, maybe been to Sunday school classes. You've read books about it. You know that Uh, In human terms, a man named John Mark is thought to have penned this gospel account, probably under the tutelage and instruction of the Apostle Peter. We, of course, know this to be the very Word of God, inspired by the Spirit himself. And as we receive these words, we receive them not just as a historical document, but we receive this as the inspired Word of our Lord, instruction, truth from the very mouth of God to us. Some of you are probably aware that Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, uh, 16 chapters. Some of them are long, uh, but still, word for word, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark is known for its brevity. Uh, Mark, like like much of the Scriptures, but Mark especially, there's a certain economy of words. A whole lot is said in just a few words. And a whole lot is said quickly. The Gospel of Mark is known for its sort of breathlessness, the quality of things moving very rapidly. Um, The word immediately is repeated often. And if you look, the majority of the sentences in the Gospel of Mark in the English translation begin with the word and. Even if you look at chapter 1 here and look at those verses numbered uh, in your Bible, you can see that most of them begin with the word and. Because Mark is moving rapidly through the narration. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And it is, there is sort of a breathless quality about it. Mark is sometimes referred to as the the gospel of action. Relatively speaking, uh, there there is not, there's an absence of sermons and extended teaching from the Lord Jesus, again, relative to the other gospels. The Lord Jesus teaches, but his instruction in Mark is framed as explanation of the action that is happening. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of the Gospel of John in that way. You know, John, there are these miracles worked, there are these, these signs given that are uh, indications of what he's been teaching. And in Mark, it's sort of the other way around. Jesus does these things and explains what he's doing. Mark is also known for being sprinkled with some of the most personal details about the Lord in terms of his looks, in terms of his gestures, his humanity while he walked on the earth. Mark is the one who records the Lord Jesus when he's healing the man, looking up to the heavens and sighing. Mark is the one who records the Lord Jesus in chapter 10 looking at the rich young ruler as he walks away, Mark tells us he, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark is filled with little details like that about our Lord's looks, about his gestures, about his behavior. And we see Christ here in the Gospel of Mark. We see Christ in all of the Gospels. Friends, we see Christ in all of the Scriptures. But we see Christ here in the Gospel of Mark his service to us, and his sacrifice for us emphasized again and again. Those will be themes that we'll see repeatedly as we study Mark. Christ the servant and Christ the sacrifice. I want to encourage you all as we begin to study Mark together and Lord willing uh, continue in the coming months, I want to encourage you all to pray that we would know the Lord Jesus better as we study the scriptures together. And any one of us can go home and read the Gospel of Mark this afternoon. You could do it. It would only take about an hour to read all 16 of those chapters. But there is something special about our gathering here together on Sunday morning with the presence of the Lord meeting with us here. There is something, there's, there's something special of the power of his blessing on us here together as His Word is preached, as His Word is heard preached, and as we respond together as a congregation, I would encourage you all to be praying that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ like we've not seen Him before. That we would know Him like we've not known Him before. That there would be depths of our fellowship with Him that would come from seeing Him clearly in His Word. That would be a profound blessing to us as a church. Now, Before Mark begins to tell us about our Lord, he tells us first about John, John the Baptist, and the text that we just read here, the first eight verses of the Gospel of Mark. Mark tells us first about John, who is this sort of divinely provided introduction to Jesus, our King. He is sort of a forerunner. In verses 2 and 3, Mark references two Old Testament passages. They're sort of lumped together under the reference to Isaiah, but it's from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, these Old Testament prophecies that Mark is referring to are part of really a a long-running prophecy foretelling the coming of the king that begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. When our first parents fell in sin and rebellion against God and God promised that he would send a descendant that was going to make things right. All throughout the scriptures that promise, that prophecy of what was to come, it's expanded and emphasized and explained in more detail as we go on and on through the scriptures. This one is going to come and make all things right. He is going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to be a king like David. He's going to be a priest. And when he comes, he's going to be preceded by a herald. You remember what a herald is? Not like your uncle herald, but a herald, somebody who who announces the coming of a king. You think about you know, uh, movies or books where the you know, king so-and-so in medieval periods is coming into the, into the city and somebody comes in advance with a trumpet, you know, and he's you know, wearing whatever, some royal garb, and he shouts out, you know, Be, the king is coming, you know, pr- prepare the way of the king. That's what a herald is, somebody who's announcing his coming. And the scriptures are clear in various places. These two referenced here that Mark pulls out of Malachi and Isaiah the Lord's King, the Savior of the world. When he comes, he will be preceded by a herald. There will be someone who announces his coming. And then in verses 4 through 8, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. It's John. And in the context, I think there is is something something surprising about verse 4. John appeared. You know, The great, king of kings is coming, the Lord of lords, the one who is exalted above the heavens and the earth, the Savior is coming, the one who will sit on David's throne forever. His herald before him is going to come. John appears in the wilderness, camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, eating locusts and wild honey, baptizing people, and proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's something surprising that it's John who would be the herald. He's not what you would expect, not what they were expecting. But it does make sense, doesn't it? The king was not what they were expecting. I mean, they were expecting glory and power to be seen with the eye. And that is not the kind of king that they received, is it? The Lord Jesus came in humility, riding on a donkey. He was born in a manger. He came as a servant and a sacrifice. Again, the themes that Mark is going to emphasize again and again. And the herald fits the Lord. The herald is in royal garb in that way. He comes clothed in humility. He comes clothed in service. He's out in the wilderness proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. John is very clearly the Lord's chosen servant, and, and Jesus makes that crystal clear. In John chapter 5, Jesus refers to John the Baptist as a bright light among them for a little while. In Matthew chapter 11, that same chapter we read from earlier, Jesus ref- says that there is no one greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. In this specific moment here, John is this servant called out. He is a voice calling, preparing the way of the Lord is coming. Now, there is a sense in which we have that in common with him as a church, do we not? As the church in our time. Our Lord has come, but he's going to come again, isn't he? He has come. He died for our sins, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And as I said earlier, he waits for the day when he's to come in power. And now we are his servants. We, the church, his people, we for a short time are here to do the same sort of work that John was doing in a sense to proclaim the truth to the world and to prepare his way in that regard. And for that reason, John is instructive for us. His earthly ministry is something of a model for us as we live our lives in this age as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ. In John's ministry, we find an example, because the church, like John the Baptist, is to be a sort of voice calling out to the world to turn to Christ and be received by him. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning, I have three lessons that we can learn from how we are to conduct ourselves in the service of our Lord from John's ministry here. The three lessons we can learn, one, we learn from John's message. We also learn from John's method. And we learn from the way John spoke about his master. I have tried to alliterate. His, me- his message, his method, and his master. So first, consider with me The message that John preached. Verse 4, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 8, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, many were coming out to him. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. No. John's message was one of repentance and forgiveness and a new birth, the baptism of the Spirit. John is known as the Baptist because, of course, he was baptizing. It's not because he was part of the Southern Baptist Convention or something like that. He was somebody who, who was baptizing. That was the work that he was doing. You could call him John the Baptizer. Baptism was not a new thing at this point, In human history or even in Jewish tradition, baptism is not unheard of. In fact, converts, proselytes, were often baptized as a a sign of repentance, of resolution, of change and commitment. And clearly that is part of John's intent here. There's something about repentance going on in verse 4. In verse 5, they came out confessing their sins. They were acknowledging their fault and turning around. If you read the account of John's preaching in the other gospels, Luke and Matthew, you see, you hear that very, very clearly. John calls them a brood of vipers. Who warned you about what was coming? And he calls them to repent. He says, those of you that are soldiers don't take bribes anymore. Repent of your sin. He's calling them to repentance, to acknowledge that they are sinners, to confess and be baptized. But He was not just preaching a change, though. He was also preaching forgiveness. This is clear. You see in verse 4, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Clearly, the baptism, the repentance, the calling to confession that John was doing was in the context of needing forgiveness for that sin. John was not just calling them to renounce sin for its own sake or for their sake only, but because it was sin against God and they needed to be forgiven. John was not just calling them to improve their lives and cast off their their wicked restraints and live more holy, healthy lives. He was calling them to repent that they might be forgiven. And friends, this, this is important that we remember that our sin is sin against God. It's very easy for us, is it not, to start thinking of sin simply as mistakes, as as foibles, as imperfections about us, as things that are not quite yet like they ought to be, character flaws, weaknesses of character, inferiority about us. And we, we can easily forget that it is an offense against God when we sin you know when at our house if we're sitting around the table and one of my if one of my sons uh speaks in a rude way to his mother let's say he has a a sarcastic comment to make or he says he has some sass for his mom when she tells him to do something i mean that is a that is a character flaw right That is something that that my, my son should not do. It's disrespect towards his parents. It's the kind of thing that adults do not appreciate. It's not going to help you in your life if you speak to people who are in authority over you with disrespect. And in that sense, I want to correct my son. Don't act that way, son. That's foolishness. You're not helping yourself. You're hurting yourself. It's not right. Improve. But there's also another sense in which when my son speaks disrespectfully to his mother, He's not just demonstrated an imperfection in his character and his behavior. He's also sinned against his mother. He's, just, he's sinned against me too, hasn't he? She's my wife. It's not just some arbitrary demonstration of an imperfection in him. It is an offense against this woman who has raised him and loved him and cared for him. It's an offense against me, her husband, and the father of my son. The sin is against some. Now, you see the point that I'm making. It's easy for us to think of our sins as arbitrary imperfections, but really our sins are sins against God. There is a head of the household that we live in. It is the living God himself. And all the ways in which I throw his generosity, his rule, his grace, his provision back in his face with my ungratefulness, with my failure to acknowledge His goodness, with my failure to submit to His righteous rule and rather to go my own way and to exalt myself above Him, all of that, not only is it human imperfection, it very much is, but it's offense against Him. My sins are not committed in a vacuum. They are all sins against the God who made me and deserves my love and my respect. Right, you, see, you see my point, that makes a difference. The call to repentance that John was giving was not just a call to change, it was a call to seek forgiveness. And friends, so it is with us. Our sin is all sin against God. All of our sins against each other are ultimately sins against him. That's what Psalm 51 says, isn't it? David says, against you and you only have I sinned. In a sense, everything is an offense against him in the end, from we who are made in his image. And our sin needs to be forgiven. But it doesn't just need to be forgiven. Not only does it need to be confessed, not only does it need to be forgiven, we actually need to be made new. This is part of what John's preaching as well. In verse 8, I baptize you with water, but he, the one coming after me, who's mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's not enough to confess. It's not enough to be forgiven for the past. We actually have to be made new. We have to actually have the very spirit of God do a work in our hearts to make us someone different than we were before. We cannot function in religious ways from a distance and do things to make ourselves acceptable to God God actually has to reach down and do a work in our hearts to make us new. We have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, not just water, not just tears of repentance, not even just claiming forgiveness. We have to be indwelled by the very Spirit of God. This is part of what John was preaching. It'd be made very clear as Christ goes on and as the rest of the New Testament unfolds it. But Part of the gospel is that God himself will put his spirit in you. He will come to dwell with you. Friends, it's important that we believe that. It's important that we believe in the reality of the new birth. That when someone confesses their sins and turns to God for forgiveness and grace, that God actually does a work in their hearts. It's not just a technical status that we gain before him, but he actually works in you and makes you someone different than you were before. The fruit of that comes in shades over time. Progressively, we're sanctified. But there really is a work of redemption and new birth that happens in the heart when someone believes. There's a difference between people apart from Christ and those who are in Christ. And the difference is this work of regeneration in the heart. Now, I point this out to you because it is very important that these three elements be in the gospel that we are preaching, that we be preaching the same message that John was preaching in that sense. We be preaching forgiveness, repentance, and the new birth. Now, throughout church history, the true gospel preached among God's people as had these elements. it has been a call to repentance. It has been a promise of forgiveness in Christ, and it has been assurance of the new birth. You, you remember, I mean, gosh, all the way back in Acts chapter 2, when the apostle Peter preaches that message at Pentecost, and he talks about Christ being the Lord who, was, who suffered among them and was killed and crucified by them and is now exalted in heaven. And the people say, what shall we do? They're cut to the heart. How does Peter respond in verse 38 of Acts chapter 2? Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear those three things there? Repent and be baptized for forgiveness for your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Throughout the generations... It's always been a temptation of the church to lose one of these things, to lose the doctrine of repentance and to begin preaching a gospel that really is just universalism and cheap grace in the end. You have no idea how wonderful you have it. You don't have to do anything except for realize it. And there's no repentance at all. We lose the gospel that way. There's been preaching that is without forgiveness. You are a a horrendous sinner before God and you need to, to turn around and turn to him. And there is no promise of forgiveness in the new birth. And this ends up being an unbearable burden for people and a hopeless kind of gospel that is not gospel at all. And there has also been plenty of preaching without the reality of the new birth. Here's the truth about God and here's what you're to do. And you're to do it in your own strength. And then the end of that is only dead religion and human effort and a sort of dry legalism that saves no one. No, the true gospel, the true message that John preached and that we as a church are to preach is that of repentance and forgiveness and the reality of the new birth. We have to hold fast to that message, to be calling people to turn aside from their sins, to turn away from their sins and repentance, to turn to Christ, believing that he will forgive them. And not only will he forgive them, but he'll make them new. And dwell with them as a new creation. Friends, is this what you understand the message of the church to be? Have you heard a message that is without repentance, or it's without forgiveness, or it's without a new birth? It took me a while to get these three components, I'll confess to you. Initially, when I started coming to to the church, when I started hearing the the gospel and the Bible preached, I thought that it was a message of things are better than you think, God is better than you think. And you need to realize that. And it took me a little while to realize no, there's a call to repentance here. I have acted as a rebel against God. I need to turn from my sins. And it took me even longer to realize, to hear the message that as I turn from my sin and turn to Him, oh, He forgives. He really forgives. That our sins are washed away and separated from us, atoned for by the blood of Christ, that He's satisfied the wrath of God. And then, friends, to realize that not only has he really forgiven me for my sins, oh, but he has come to dwell with me, his very spirit to live with me and make me new. This is the message of the church. This is the message that we are to hold fast to and believe and that we are to continue preaching year after year, generation after generation. This is what we're to be crying out to the world from the wilderness. You have sinned against God and need to repent. But if you turn to him, he'll forgive you. He will forgive all of your sins. And in fact, he will be in fellowship with you. He will put his own spirit in you. And you will know the God whom you've rebelled against. Now, that is good news. We've got to be careful that we hold fast to it. The second thing that I want to point out to you, the second lesson we learned from John here is about his method, and I'll be be quicker here. Not only do we see John's message as an example for us, we also see his method. John carried out his work of preaching with just a plain and bold declaration of the truth to the world. The response to John's preaching here in Mark chapter 1 is stunning. Look at verse 5. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. You've got to imagine, the man is out in the wilderness. He's not in downtown Jerusalem. He's out in the countryside, arid desert region with whatever the... You know, Palestinian equivalent of tumbleweeds is and snakes. I don't know what was there, but not an appealing place to be. And he's pre- what is he preaching? He's preaching repentance, the need to, to be forgiven. He's calling people to confess, and they come out in droves to him. Huge crowds come out to him. They come a long way. They're not driving out. They're walking out. There's a huge variety of folks. My wife took the kids to the pool yesterday, and she asked me if I wanted to come. At the, and I was done preparing for the sermon yesterday afternoon. She said, you want to come meet us at the pool? And I thought, oh, the pool, it's got to be so hot. You know, oh, it's got to be so sunny. I mean, I didn't want to go sit under an umbrella next to a pool because it would be an inconvenience to me. I did go. But people walked for miles to go hear John preach repentance and be baptized. Now how did he do that? How did he accomplish that? And a huge variety of folks, too. I mean, it wasn't just just one segment of society. There were rich people, there were poor people, they were educated, they were uneducated, there were soldiers, there were Pharisees that went out, religious leaders of the day. How did John do it? Well, he did it by preaching, preaching the message of repentance and forgiveness and the new birth. And that's all. The Gospels note his dress and his diet and his location, and they all make a point of the camel's hair and the leather belt, uh, and if he's out in the wilderness and he's eating locusts and wild honey. And there is a sense in which that's, it, that's, that's an indication, it's pointing to the fact that he is sort of an Elijah come again. He does have shades of the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament, but I think it's, it's really it's notable not just what John is doing here, but what he's not doing. When the gospel writers tell, or tell us that he was wearing camels hair and a leather belt and eating locusts and honey. He is not in the midst of things. Like I said, he's not in downtown Jerusalem where everybody is. He does not have great curb appeal out in the wilderness. They had to come to him. And he's not dressed up in fine, appealing garb. He's not dressed up in the the fineries of the day. Jesus makes it very clear later on. He didn't come to you in soft clothing. He comes in rough clothing. It's, It's functional desert clothing. It's practical clothing for being out in the wilderness where he was. John is very much out of step with the world. He's making no effort to appeal to their taste. He's declaring the truth plainly to them, and he's not using gimmicks to make it appealing. And I think that's also a lesson for us in the way that we are to go about preaching this message, this message of repentance and forgiveness and the new birth. There is a sense in which we are to be out of step with the world. We are, to, we are not to be guided by the taste of the world and our time. It's a very odd thing that someone would paint on the side of our building at some point last night, bad taste. That's a strange thing to put up on the side of the building. If they don't like us, they surely would not have liked John the Baptist. They might have said the same thing about him. Good intentions, but boy, bad taste. Locust? Wild honey. Have you seen the way that guy's dressed? John was making no attempt to appeal to their worldly sensibilities and make the message palatable in a human sense to them. He was just preaching to them. And they accused him of having bad taste, I'm sure. We are in good company in that regard. We are to not be guided by the world. We are to be separate from the world in that way. It is tempting sometimes, friends, to think, oh, if only we could get up in the middle of the action, be in the middle of the conversation, and give the gospel a a hearing in that way. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in us taking our cues, the church taking our cues from the politics of the world, from the social causes of the world. We are to be different, wholly different, and set apart. There's also a danger that we will be tempted to declare this truth with the the help of gimmicks. We'll adorn it with things that are palatable to the world to, to make people not realize what it is they're swallowing. You know, the way you stick a pill and a piece of bacon or something for your dog. Sometimes our evangelism takes that very un, unfortunate kind of method, doesn't it? We want to adopt the style of the world. We want to to look and sound and dress just like the world. We want our music to be like theirs. They, They don't like listening to preaching. They like videos. Well, we'll have videos then. They don't like coming to places. They like going online. Well, we'll have our services online. You just log in. It's tempting to take our cues from the world rather than to preach the unadorned truth. We treat the world... Far too often, friends, I think the church treats the world like a popular girl that we're trying to impress, who isn't really that interested in us. If only I could be a little bit cooler, then maybe she'd notice me. Oh, friends, let's not do that. Let's not walk as disciples of the Lord Jesus with that kind of attitude. Rather, let's stand up and declare the truth plainly. This service that we're having right here this morning, This is not all that different from what our brothers and sisters have been doing for hundreds of years. Standing up, singing songs. Some of the songs are the same songs. Standing up and praying together, reading the same words in the scriptures. Somebody declaring the truth of the gospel to listening ears, receiving it in faith. I mean, some of the way that we're dressed, the fact that there's a screen here, some of these things, the fact that my voice is amplified, this would be stunning to our brothers and sisters from a few hundred years ago. But the actual process of what's happening here this morning is not different. And that's good. We're not to be trying to ape the methods of the world in order to make the gospel palatable to them. Trying to sneak in the gospel. We're to be preaching it clearly. We're not to be putting up unnecessary obstacles. But friends, neither are we trying to impress the world with our own values you remember the early church did not pray for new innovative innovative techniques. They prayed for boldness. And I think we, likewise, should not be praying for new innovative techniques, but rather boldness. Now, the last point that I want to make to you here, we have a lesson to learn from John in what he preached, his message. We have a lesson to learn from John in his method, His separation from the world and his forsaking all worldly gimmicks in his preaching. We also have a lesson to learn from John about his master and the way that he spoke about Christ and exalted him. Look at verse 7. He preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John spoke about the Lord Jesus and he elevated him. John talked to the crowds about the one who was coming. After me comes one who is mightier than I. And the strap of his sandals, his shoelaces, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie them. John preached to them about Christ. He gave him glory. And in in the other gospels, it, it it is even... More clear, and, and some of what John says is so beautiful, I do want to read it to you. In John chapter 1, beginning with verse 31, this is the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 31, Paul says, I mean, John says, I myself did not know him, this is the Lord Jesus, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is why I'm here, is to reveal him. It's not about me and what I'm saying, it's about him and what he is doing. In John chapter 3, he says this, starting with verse 27. John answered, this is when they're, they're, they're saying, John, aren't you jealous? He's baptizing more people than you're baptizing. And John says, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. You yourself bear me witness. I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Right? You hear the way that John talks about Jesus? Listen, the one that's coming, the one that's bad, that one over there, he is the bridegroom. I'm a friend of the bridegroom. I'm not jealous that he's come. I rejoice in his coming. This is what, this is what my life is about, him being exalted and I'm happy to decrease, that he might increase. There's something of John's relationship with his master that we as a church should learn from. That we should be lifting up the Lord Jesus and exalting him in our own lives and together as a church in our gathering now. We are to be a people that that point past ourselves to him in all things. Listen, friends, when was the last time you spoke to somebody about Jesus? I don't mean about the church. I don't mean about the Bible and Bible reading. I don't mean about prayer, but I mean about Jesus Christ himself. When was the last time in a conversation with someone you turned their attention to the person of Jesus Christ and spoke about him and his glory and his beauty and his wisdom? How often do you speak of Christ the way that John spoke here? How often do you turn your own attention to him? Again, I'm not just talking about the things of the church and the things of religion and the things of the Christian life, but Christ himself. I, I talk about spiritual things all the time with people. That's part of a, maybe a vocational hazard, you might say. People talk to me all the time and I talk often about religion. I talk about the scriptures. I talk about prayer. I talk about holiness. I talk about obedience to the word of God. But I confess to you, as I've been thinking this week about it, I do not not talk about Jesus enough. I talk about his things a lot, his ways a lot. But I do not often enough speak about him. I do not often enough say, after me comes one who's mightier than I. And I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll tell you what I think, but oh, him, though. I'll tell you what you should do, what you should think, but oh, him. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Right? We can, as a church, we can baptize you with water, Ah, but he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see? Friends, we need to be those who speak of our master the way that John spoke of him. I confess to you, I am guilty of not speaking of Christ enough, of not exalting him enough in this way. I need to learn from John. Let's learn together. Let's preach the message that he preached and hold fast to it and believe it. Repentance and real forgiveness and the real baptism of the Holy Spirit, the real new birth. Let's do so In the manner, the method that we see with John, not trusting in the things of the world, not caring about what the world's tastes are like, but with a plain and bold declaration of the truth, trusting in the power of the gospel. And friends, let's do so remembering that all of this is about our master in the end. It's not about a religion. It's not about the way that you're living or I'm living. It's not about the improvement of our own lives. It is about him and his glory. He is the bridegroom, and he is coming again soon. We have work to do in proclaiming this gospel from the wilderness to the world. We can baptize you with water here, but Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the truth. Now, having taken a look at John, we're going to spend the months to come taking a look at Christ as he is described here in the scriptures. And right now this morning, we're going to turn our attention now to Christ as he is demonstrated here at the table. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. A declaration, a sermon without words in a way, that Christ is glorious and we should repent of our sin and turn to him. And if you turn to him, he will be merciful and forgive you. And not only that, but He will give you real life and His own Spirit put in you. That's what the table is saying. Christ broke His body, poured out His blood that sinners might be forgiven. Christ invites sinners to come and be forgiven. And He invites us to come and partake of His life and live. That's what this table is saying. So let's, let's pray together now, and then we'll, we'll have the table. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great kindness to us. We thank you for the mercy that you've shown us as a church. We thank you for loving your bride for all these generations. We pray, oh Lord, that you would help us now to receive these good gifts with faith. We ask this, Christ, in your name. Amen. Amen.